This was one of my first cases that I got when I came to financial crimes. So I was all ears. I said, give me everything and anything that you possibly have on this alleged suspect, on any of the banking. Detective Michael McCaffrey is a member of the NYPD's Financial Crimes Task Force. Five years ago, he investigated a case of bank fraud. City National Bank explains to me that an individual stated she was a German heiress and she was looking for about a $22 million loan to open up some sort of social club in Lower Manhattan. This individual, who we found out later was Anna Sorokin, provided two bank documents showing that she was worth about 59 million euro. Anna then told City National Bank that this money was tied up overseas and due to tax implications, she had no access to it, but she was still good for the money. Anna Sorokin, also known as Anna Delvey, the fake German heiress, was a 26-year-old Russian-born German citizen with a taste for luxury brands and meals at Manhattan's finest restaurants. She lived downtown in a series of boutique hotels. Many people see you as the ultimate scammer. Are you? No, absolutely not. During a four-month span from 2016 to 2017, she attempted to defraud banks out of $52 million and committed a few other crimes along the way. Her crimes were so audacious that publicity surrounding her arrest and trial elevated her to the status of social media icon. Is she in a courtroom or at a red carpet event? Sorkin's case even capturing Hollywood's attention. Grey's Anatomy creator Shonda Rhimes behind an upcoming project for Netflix based on this New York Magazine article. Her courtroom style, complete with designer glasses and snake print dresses, even has its own Instagram fan account. First, she became a meme, and eventually, she became a celebrity convict. All by providing what we found out later was just two bank documents showing she had money. Just two bank documents. I'm Greg Weinstein from the NYPD's podcast team, and you're listening to a special episode of Breaking the Case a podcast series written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. In 2016, Anna Delvey blew onto the New York City social scene as the newest it girl in town. You might have read the articles or seen the Netflix series Inventing Anna about Anna Sorokin. In this episode, the detective who investigated the case explains her crimes. What did she do and how did she do it? You might believe that Anna Sorokin is a very gifted, clever, wannabe businesswoman or a complete con artist. It takes a very unique kind of person to have such confidence that they can do this to so many people. After the break, the real crimes of the fake German heiress. On May 17, 2017, a security officer at City National Bank contacts the Financial Crimes Task Force to report wire fraud. The perpetrator, they say, is a 26-year-old named Anna Sorokin Delvey. City National Bank was owed a significant amount of money, around $100,000 plus interest from Anna. At this point, the bank has been waiting for payment for three months. In a series of emails between Anna and bank officials, Anna apologizes for the delays and promises that the money has been wired by her accountant in Germany. Anna would always say, let me contact my accountant, Bettina Wagner. Bettina Wagner sent the wire. Bettina said the wire should hit today. Forwarded emails from Bettina Wagner provide wire confirmation numbers and assertions that the money has been wired, but the money never arrives. Wires get canceled and resent. At one point, Bettina apologizes for her delayed response, saying, my daughter got really sick. On May 18th, 2017, after reading over the paperwork and talking to his supervisor, McCaffrey opens a case file. Financial crimes are our specialty. You could go to another grand larceny squad, you could go to a precinct detective squad, 
but we have the capabilities and the manpower to investigate larger financial frauds. When Anna applied for her loan, she submitted two bank statements from her accounts in Germany. She said they were her trust fund, which she'd get access to on her 26th birthday. At the time, her 26th birthday was three months away. Both statements were dated September 2016. The accounts totaled 59 million euros, the equivalent to about $48 million US. City National Bank had already done their own investigation into the bank statements, and they believed that at least one of them was fraudulent. When McCaffrey started his investigation, he hit a firewall. International banks like Deutsche Bank or UBS, they have a, a United States faction. We have United States bankers that could access this information. These were overseas accounts. So even when we, we sent subpoenas to these banks, they're like, we would love to help you. However, we cannot access these bank accounts. And through methods, we're able to finally figure out that these bank accounts, at least one of these bank accounts was a real account number with a real balance, but it most certainly did not belong to Anna Sorek and Delvey. The document for that bank account looked strange. It was very like old and weathered, looked like it had been copied and then scanned and then copied of that scan. It turns out that both bank statements are fake. The more McCaffrey digs into the paperwork, the more holes he finds in Anna's story. Her real name is Anna Sorokin. Delvey was a name she invented for herself as an heiress. The same was true for her accountant. During the course of our investigation, we realized that there was no Bettina Wagner. This was a fictitious character that Anna had created, which fell into the scope of her fraud. Within days of the initial phone call from City National Bank, McCaffrey had uncovered a larger web of fraud. To understand it, let's go back to late November 2016, when Anna applied for a $22 million loan. Her proposed social and arts club is called the Anna Delvey Foundation, ADF for short. In her business plan, she describes it this way. Easily accessible and stylishly conceived, ADF offers fine dining, cocktails, members' lounges, contemporary art, and an artist's studio, entirely integrated within a historic building in the heart of Manhattan. On December 15th, 2016, City National denies Anna's loan. The reason, they say, is her lack of business experience. When they crunch the numbers, they calculate that she won't be able to make enough money to make her interest payments for at least a year. Upon being denied that loan from City National Bank, Anna then goes over to a company called Fortress Investment and attempts to get a $30 million loan. And she came pretty close. Fortress Investment cuts a letter of intent showing that after a background check was to be completed, potentially she was going to be extended this $30 million loan. This letter of intent was dated January 5th, 2017. Fortress then said, well, we need about $100,000 upfront in order to conduct our due diligence on who you are. Anna circles back to City National Bank and says, hey, can I at least get 100000 And City National Bank goes, okay, sure, here's 100000 So what City National does is they create a bank account for Anna, which is also associated with her Park Avenue South business or LLC. City National Bank makes the account balance in that account negative $100,000. Anna is to make periodic payments into this account until the balance ascends back to zero. The $100,000 was wired from City National to Fortress on January 12th, 2017. Sometime in early February, Fortress denies her loan because they can't confirm her bank statements. They had only used about $45,000 of the due diligence fees in their investigation. So they returned the remaining $55,000, not to City National Bank, but to Anna. McCaffrey also learns that Anna's lease for the building at 281 Park Avenue South, the site of her proposed social club, had never been finalized. 
The agreement was drawn up in May 2016, but Anna never paid the security deposit and the first month's rent. We took a dive into Anna's social media. Now this is interesting, at the, at the time that the investigation first started, City National Bank was able to ascertain Anna's Instagram. She only had 16 followers. Many of the likes on some all of her photos were those bot profiles. Like it looks like she had paid for likes on her Instagram. I found that to be particularly odd, especially for somebody who says that they were an heiress, this New York socialite who's running around Soho. It's only have 16 followers on Instagram. My softball Instagram has more followers than that. Yeah, I mean, did you almost think for a second that is there even another person behind Anna? It wasn't until we queried her, you know, her passport, we found out that she was a real person. When you're not a citizen of the United States or you haven't been here for an extended period of time, generally there's a pretty small paper trail. Within two weeks of his investigation, McCaffrey had enough information about the bank fraud to reach out to the assistant district attorney in charge of cyber crimes and ID theft. The ADA asked to take a closer look at the paperwork. This was an interesting case because we already knew who the perpetrator was. We knew it was this woman named Anna Sorokin Delvey. So our thing is, let's build a case around this. What do we know about this person? The paper trail was short, but from McCaffrey's interviews of those who had interacted with her, he learned this. She did it all using her real name. She didn't open up a bank account in a fake name. When an individual commits financial crimes under their real name, they're very confident that they're not going to get caught or that they could talk their way out of it or that this long con is just never going to end. Um, I've had other confidence men cases, um, and it's the same MO. All the bank accounts are opened up in the, the real name of the individual, and then they commit the fraud. Now, I never got to sit down and talk to Anna, interview Anna about the case, but I've spoken with other, other confidence men, and at some point they break and they just say, I just I had to do it. Why wouldn't I do it? While McCaffrey is building his case, Anna is bottoming out. For three weeks in June, she stays at the Beekman Hotel and doesn't pay her bill. On July 3rd, she stays at a W Hotel and again doesn't pay her bill. So she got arrested twice, but you're kind of still just watching in a sense, right? You know her whereabouts and you're building this case, right? Is that how that works? Yeah. So when you're working a financial investigation, you always keep a keen eye on your suspects. But if they get pinched for something else, you're not going to swoop in and charge them as well. With long-term investigations, you have to get all of your ducks in a row. You have to get all of your evidence. Generally, you want to bring it to a grand jury and have this person indicted before you arrest them. It just makes the evidentiary portion of the case a lot easier and a lot smoother. We were tracking that she had got arrested. Uh, I believe it was the second time in July that Anna had got arrested that it actually hit the New York Post. And that's when I forwarded the link to the prosecutor's office. I said, hey, FYI, this is uh, a subject in a joint investigation. I'm working with your office. This girl made the post. Food for thought. She seems to be getting some sort of publicity, whether warranted or not. Here she is. Do you have any idea why she would be getting publicity at that point? I spoke with the guy from the New York Post, the photographer who had taken the photos of Anna. He sits in court all day, and he said she had an interesting story, and she looked like an interesting person. So he took photos of her. On August 2nd, 2017, somebody else emails the New York Post link to the DA's office, someone who becomes a key player in the investigation. After the break, a trip to Marrakesh gets dicey, and the case gets bigger. On August 2nd, 2017, Anna's friend, Rachel Deloche-Williams, emails the Manhattan District Attorney's Office a link to the New York Post article, Wannabe Socialite Busted for Skipping Out on Pricey Hotel Bills. 
In her message, she accuses Anna of being a fraud. In the summer of 2017, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office contacted me because we were running this investigation into Anna. And they said I should probably talk with this person named Rachel Williams, who's an ex-friend and a possible victim of another Anna Delvey scheme. The case had been assigned to Manhattan ADA Catherine McCaw, head of the Financial Frauds Bureau. So I reached out to Rachel. She explained to me in detail what had happened. Rachel told me that she was a, an employee of Vanity Fair, made a very modest living. She lived in Manhattan herself, and she had befriended this woman named Anna, and they became particularly close. She said that Anna was a German heiress, Anna was worth a ton of money, and then she explained to me how everything unraveled. In early May 2017, Anna invited Rachel and two others on an all-expenses-paid trip to Marrakesh. Anna started having problems with credit cards even before the flight to Morocco was booked. While Rachel was in Manhattan, Anna contacts Rachel and says, my credit cards aren't working. I don't currently have the money. It's frozen. Can you just book these airline tickets for me? And Rachel does, uh, expecting to get paid back. Because Anna's been, has shown this affluence before. She's very, uh, very wealthy. Anna books a villa at La Mamonia, a five-star hotel that costs $7,500 a night. And then as we go into Marrakesh, Anna then runs out of money once again. Her credit cards are frozen. Rachel ultimately puts the money on her card. At some point in time, Rachel was approached uh, while with Anna by the hotel managers who said, you owe us money for this trip. Like we, the credit cards you're giving us aren't working. We're not receiving your wires. You're absolutely not leaving right here, right now, until we get our money or we call the local authorities. And to your knowledge at this point, the Marrakesh trip was the first time that someone really told Anna no. Yeah, that was like the first time where somebody was like, you're not leaving. We're not extending you any more line of credit. Like." pony up. At which point, Rachel had told me that Anna wasn't making any attempt to pay. So Rachel ultimately had to lay out the money and was told by Anna that this money would be reimbursed to her. Rachel tells us she's fearful of being stranded in a foreign country. So she offers her credit cards as a temporary backup, even though she can't afford it. Rachel ultimately puts the money on her card. I leave early on Friday morning. When I land, I get a text message that the whole bill is being charged to my cards. How much? $62,000. $62,000. How did you even wrap your mind around that? It was such a, a complex, paralyzing moment for me. She owed me more money than I made in a year. That whole crime itself originated in Manhattan. And that's why we decided to add that to the complaint as well. Is not paying back a loan to a friend a financial crime within your purview? Or is it a financial crime at all? Yes. It's grand larceny by false promise. So written or oral, I make a promise to somebody. And as a result, they extend a lot of credit. They extend money. They put a car lease in their name, whatever the case is. And I, having no intent to ever pay that money back, have this person go through with it, yeah, it's a crime. In spite of Anna's promises to pay back her friend, she gave back only $5,000. Rachel humanized the case a little bit. So prior to having Rachel on our complaint, we had a couple banks that almost lost money, some banks that did lose money, and we have a an air transport company that it took a hit that I would assume they could most likely afford. Other crimes are added to the indictment. In the spring and summer of 2017, Anna committed what's known as check-kiting at two different banks. She deposited $160,000 in checks and walked away with $78,000. Check-kiting is one form of a financial crime. What an individual would do is they would write a check from a bank account, 
for more money than is actually in that bank account. The same person or somebody else in on the scam would deposit this check into a bank account. During that float period, which is generally like one to three days, the banks will allow people to withdraw a certain amount of money. The people will take out as much money as they can during that time. Once the second bank tries to recall the amount of money from that first bank on the check, the first bank's gonna say they don't have that amount of money. And when that happens, they report fraud. Also, in early May, Anna traveled by private jet to the Berkshire Hathaway Conference in Omaha, Nebraska. She didn't pay up front. Instead, she promised the private jet company that the $35,000 charter fee was in the process of being wired. She even showed them a screenshot of the wire transfer from her European bank. Obviously, Anna never pays that money back either. So we have that theft of service charge. By the end of August, the investigation was complete. In late August of 2017, we brought it to a grand jury. The grand jury came back with a seven count indictment. Ultimately, Anna was indicted on two counts of attempted grand larceny one for the two loans, one from City National Bank and one from Fortress Investment to be used for her project Park Avenue South or the Anna Delvey Foundation. She was also indicted on three counts of grand larceny in the second degree. For the $100,000 loan, she never repaid to City National Bank the $70,000 she got from a bank while check kiting, and $62,000 she stole from Rachel Williams. She was also charged for theft of services for skipping out on the $35,000 private jet bill, and grand larceny in the third degree for check kiting $8,000 from another bank. We subsequently had an arrest warrant generated, and then it was my job to go find her. Up next, the search for Anna. We got the arrest warrant very, very early September of 2017, and Anna had a court date a couple days after we got the arrest warrant. On September 5th, Anna was on the court docket for theft of service charges for skipping out on two hotel bills. So myself and Detective Anthony Napoli actually waited in court for Anna to show up, and we were going to apprehend her as she's leaving court. She doesn't show. So the court officer, for whatever reason, goes, excuse me, Detective, Anna didn't show today. So now her lawyer, Todd Spodick, whips around and goes, are you looking into my client for something? So now I got to talk to him. And then there's the photographer guy who's like, hey, I heard you're looking for Anna. What do you got on her? And I'm like, come on, leave me alone. Of course, of course she didn't show up. So we take a couple preliminary steps to try and find Anna. Uh, For one, we tell her lawyer, have herself surrender. Here's my phone number, call me if you hear from her. Lawyer goes, no problem can't get in contact with her. Then we do a hotel canvas. So we know Anna was staying at all these high-end hotels in Soho, in the West Village. Actually, one day I walked the length of Canal Street from the East River to the Hudson River, going to any and all hotels to see if she was there. Horrible walk, don't recommend doing it in Converse. Were you just like going into the lobbies and basically being (laughs) like, do you have an Anna Delvey or an Anna Sorokin here? Is that how Yeah, I swear I'm with the NYPD. I'm looking for this person. So that was a negative. They tried tracing her phone. That didn't work either. We determined that the best course of action to track down Anna would be through Rachel Williams. So we called Rachel Williams. We had a meeting with her. And we said, would you be willing to help us find Anna? And Rachel said, absolutely. Now, one of my biggest things is not putting my victims in any more agony, any more trouble than they've already been inconvenienced with. Um, so I asked Rachel personally, I said, is this something that you're willing to do? Like, I don't want this to be a mental stress on you. I don't want you to feel like this is some burdensome request. Just tell me no, and we'll, we'll find her eventually. 
uh, Rachel said she'd be more than happy to assist. Although they'd been out of touch for about a month, Rachel reached out to Anna via text. You know, for every 10 texts Rachel would send, Anna would write back to one. So we were trying to figure out, where's Anna? Rachel would ask, where are you? Anna would say, I'm in a hospital. And Rachel would say, oh my God, are you okay? Let me send you flowers. Anna would then respond a week later, in California. So through law of deduction, it was like a big game of guess who, right? We're like knocking down these little pieces to figure out where ultimately Anna is. And we're able to deduce at some point that Anna was temporarily residing in a rehab facility called uh, Passages Malibu, located in California. How long from when Rachel started texting Anna again until you finally figured out, you know, that she was in Malibu? I would say the rehab facility. About three weeks after Rachel initially took on our endeavor to find Anna, that we deduced that Anna was actually staying in Passages Malibu in California. So my next step is to reach out to LAPD. So I call the Los Angeles Police Department and I get in contact with their fugitive squad. Uh, I speak with one of the detectives there, super helpful guy, and he's like, I'll take I'll take the case on Anna. I said, can you go outside of like the city limits? He goes, I could arrest anywhere in California. Rachel coincidentally happened to be in Los Angeles for some sort of Vanity Fair event. We asked Rachel if it'd be okay if she set up a fake lunch meeting with Anna. Anna said, absolutely, I'd love to meet you. Just do me a favor when you're there, just fill up a water bottle with vodka for me. Um, True story. We had LAPD waiting outside of the facility. So the fugitive apprehension team drives up to Malibu. They're waiting outside. Anna is about to get into a cab when LAPD closes in on her and makes the apprehension. So I get a call from LAPD. Uh, I was actually at training that day in the Bronx, and LAPD calls me and says, we got, we got her. So at that point, the way it would work is once a fugitive is arrested outside of the state in which the warrant was issued, they have to go through an extradition hearing. There's two things she could do. Anna could have said, I'm gonna waive my right to an extradition hearing. Get me back to New York as soon as possible. Or she could say, absolutely not. I'm not going. I'm not actually Anna Sorokin Delvey. Uh, I, I didn't commit these crimes or just whatever. Whatever her reason was, she doesn't have to go. And then it goes to an extradition hearing. That would go in front of a judge in LA who would probably compare fingerprints, compare photographs and been like, no, you are who you say you are. And then she would have to get sent uh, through way of a governor's warrant. Anna ends up waiving extradition hearing. So myself and another detective fly out to Los Angeles. We go to LA County Sheriff's Department and we take possession of Anna. Transporting a prisoner on a commercial flight is no easy task. Detective McCaffrey and a female detective escort Anna back to New York on October 25th, 2017. My job is now getting Anna from this facility in Los Angeles into LAX, having nobody in LAX know that she's actually a prisoner, and boarding the plane without anybody knowing that she's a prisoner. Because once somebody on a plane sees that, like somebody's handcuff shackle, they, they think it's like Con Air. Like, oh, Cameron Poe must be on this plane with his bunny rabbit and Cyrus the virus is here. So my goal is to do it as, like, as clandestine as possible. She's not violent, she was front cuffed. We wrapped some sort of sweatshirt around her and we gave her a, a coffee or water, whatever she was drinking and she held it. She was transported in a Tyvek suit. That's like one of the things people at times question, like what, what, what the f- was she wearing during that? It was like a painter's suit. 
We were going from Los Angeles, where she was wearing like a sundress, back to New York in October, which it's not cold, but it surely isn't warm. I particularly wouldn't wear a sundress in October in New York. So I asked LA, I said, do you have anything? Like even like an LA County Sheriff's sweatshirt, anything I could, I could uh, put her in. And they're like, we have this, and it's a, a Tyvek painter suit. So she has like Prada sandals on, like these like super expensive Prada sandals, and then a Tyvek suit, and like, hair that was, I mean, you know, she was in jail for two weeks, so picture that. We get her on the plane, uh, we're flying back. I am browsing through the movie section on the plane, and I notice that the movie The Fugitive is on. So I click play, and I go, hey Anna, look, and I point, and she had no idea. She's like, I've never heard of that movie, Mike. As far as arrest warrants go, generally what we call absolute right to counsel, which are absolute right to speak to an attorney or a lawyer, that is attached to any arrest warrant. So if you arrest somebody without a warrant and they're in your custody, that's when you like read them their rights and maybe they talk about the crime, talk about another crime. When they're already indicted or you have a complaint warrant signed for New York state warrants, it comes with absolute right to counsel. So we're not allowed to talk about the crime. Basically you just have to make small talk at that point. Yeah, like she's not gonna not talk. I bought her a couple magazines. She was pretty happy. We got her headphones. She was able to like listen to music. We tried to make it as like humane as possible. And then you have to let everybody else get off the plane and then you could get off. We fingerprint her. Um, we do the arrest processing. We then, it's like nine o'clock at night now. I drive Anna to Manhattan Central Booking where she's gonna be lodged for the night. Anna had her photo taken and the processing was done. I was on a six and a half hour flight with her. I was on a... 40 minute drive back to Brooklyn, and I processed her for about three hours, and then another hour in central booking. She didn't once really ask why she was being arrested. I told her it was a warrant from New York, and that's why you're being arrested. No real follow-up, no, that would probably be my first question. The f are you taking me from California to New York for? I need to know. No, nothing. Instead, in their final exchange of the evening, Anna asked Detective McCaffrey to bring her some contact solution. He didn't know what to say. The next morning, he brought her to court. We're outside the courtroom in the hallways. Uh, Todd Spodick walks over and he's like, Anna, are you okay? He explained to her like the severity of the charges that are being levied against her in this complaint. Anna then looks at me and asks if she could go to the bathroom to do her hair. And I say, no, I'm not with another female detective. It's, you don't have to go to the bathroom. I, we're just trying to get you to court and get you out. She starts having a mental breakdown. She starts crying. Um, I mean, physically upset, tears coming down her eyes because uh, I wouldn't let her do her hair in the bathroom. It's almost as if it's more theatrical than anything else. Like she knows she's going to make a media presence and, you know, be in front of cameras. So yeah. that's what's upsetting to her. She was told the severity of the charges, the substance of the charges. She knows the crimes that she had committed and she was being charged for them. And she didn't seem visibly upset. She's then told that she's not allowed to fix her hair, and she starts hysterical crying. We then walk her into court, and that's when all the photographers were outside. They start taking photos. Uh, there's actually a photo of me with her, and I have like a piece of paper, which was the, the warrant, the paperwork that goes with it. And I'm like pointing it at people. I felt bad for her, because I'm just trying to get this girl into court and do my job. Everybody's taking photos of her, and you could tell she was like visibly upset they were taking photos. I actually yelled at them, like stop, knock it off, or whatever I said. Because she was a flight risk, Anna was not given any bail. So the judge said, 
No amount of money is going to get you out of jail right now. You're going in. She stayed at Rikers Island Prison until her trial in early April 2018. She had to fake it until she could make it. Those words from the defendant's own attorney, who claimed she never intended to commit a crime. But prosecutors call her a fraud and a liar who would do almost anything to prolong her life of luxury. Generally, financial crimes don't go to trial. There's usually a robust amount of evidence implicating the individual that was arrested. So this case specifically, Anna committed all of these crimes using her, her real name, her real identity. Um, she was doing this in person over a period of time. So I found this particularly odd that she was taking this to trial. Ultimately, she was found guilty of every charge with the exception of an attempted grand larceny one for the attempted procurement of a $30 million loan from Fortress. The woman who posed as a German heiress and lived in a luxury Manhattan hotel will now be downgrading to a prison cell. And she was also found not guilty of defrauding Rachel Williams. 28-year-old Anna Sorokin was sentenced today to four to 12 years behind bars, after which she will likely be deported. Last month, Sorokin was convicted on theft and attempted grand larceny charges. On May 9th, 2019, Anna Sorokin was sentenced to four to 12 years in prison. The judge also ordered her to pay $200,000 in restitution and a $24,000 fine. She served her time and was released for good behavior in February 2021. A few weeks later, she was detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs for overstaying her visa. She remains in ICE custody while she appeals her deportation. Since this was like, you know, obviously one of your very first cases or, you know, when you were at Financial Crimes, uh, is there anything that you took from this case that you learned going forward? This was a good case to see soup to nuts how an investigation starts, how you bring a case to the prosecutor's office beforehand, how you work in conjunction with the prosecutor's office to, to conduct an investigation. You gather all of your information, you put it together, you bring it to a grand jury, you get an indictment. It also helped me figure out how to track down fugitives, which I've done numerous times since then. Financial crimes, most of the time are an inconvenience to the victim until they get their money back. Sometimes they don't get their money back and you like absolutely cripple somebody's life. I've had cases where people have had their life savings taken out and the bank will say, well, you know, you shouldn't have done this, so sorry not getting your money back. And you're just one person. You're just one person that just had their life ruined because some fraudster decided to steal money from you. And I think that's what's interesting about the Rachel Williams portion of this case is Rachel was a human being, so she had a very modest income. The credit cards that she used in part were her personal cards. She also had to use her company cards, uh, you know, being promised by Anna that these would be reimbursed. And that's a tough blow when these banks are like, yeah, show me the money. You're, you're paying us back. We're not, or we're not giving you your money back. Now Anna's, you know, walking away, scot-free, and Rachel's stuck holding the bag. Fortunately, it's never happened to me, but I would think that's uh, mentally exhausting, physically exhausting, uh, riddled with anxiety and stress. For some, Anna has become a larger than life figure. Historically and anecdotally, a lot of the crimes, the larger financial crimes that I have seen committed are generally done by males, right? You have your, your Bernie Madoff. So this is a, a female criminal that walked into New York City, took over that specific scene, defrauded many people, and for a period of time, she was getting away with it. 
And I think while she's maybe not a relatable character, she's a character that people could appreciate. To be clear, she did break the law. She got caught and she served almost three and a half years in prison. There's nothing glamorous about that. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Case, a true crime podcast produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. If you like this episode, you might want to listen to another one of our episodes featuring the Financial Crimes Task Force. It's called Dark Web Undercover, and it's the second episode in season two. And follow the NYPD on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for updates about season three. I'm NYPD podcast producer Greg Weinstein. Until next time, be safe.